For full transcripts, translations, content notes, and resources from this episode, follow along with us on our show notes at queensmemory.org. This is the Queen's Memory Podcast, a selection of personal histories from the borough of Queens in New York City. This podcast comes to you from the Queen's Memory Project, based in Jamaica, Queens, at the Queen's Central Library. I'm Natalie Milbrook, Director of Queen's Memory, where we record and preserve contemporary history across the borough. We grow our archives by collecting oral histories, photos, and mementos shared with us by community members. Local volunteers who train with Queen's Memory staff facilitate and record our oral history interviews. We feature oral histories from our archives so we can reflect on and engage with the histories we listen to and tell one another. How do we carry each other's stories? What shapes our personal and family histories? How did we get to the neighborhoods where we live? And where are we in relation to each other's histories? As part of New York City, Queens has long been a point of entry to the United States. Thinking about the borough in this way, we searched through our archives to gather stories of migration for this first season of the Queen's Memory Podcast. These stories cross continents and move through decades of the past century. We share these oral histories to reflect on the histories of this borough, of this country, and of ourselves. I was put into fourth grade. I should have been put into like sixth. Going to school was very difficult. It was just total immersion. I had no choice, and that's how you learn. But working the classroom, I was the only redhead Italian girl. I was interested in the brain, how people behave, why they do it, and how they do it. Being Muslim, being an immigrant, I spent that entire first semester defending myself. In this fourth episode, we've gathered memories from school. While deciding on themes for each episode, we remembered the many stories in our archives of navigating public and private schools in Queens. We began to reflect on the political, economic, religious, and social forces that shape what and how we learn. We thought about classrooms and textbooks, student activities, school funding, and the government's role in education. We recall the long history of U.S. legislation tying together schooling and migration. This includes the now-repealed Naturalization Act of 1906, mandating English language proficiency for naturalized citizenship, the Immigration Act of 1990, shifting preference to formally credentialed visa applicants, and more recently, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Policy, or DACA, requiring formal education for eligibility. With the collections of personal histories in this episode, we consider how the movement of people impacts how we learn. Let's listen. We arrange this episode's oral histories on schooling into two collections. First, stories from primary school, and second, stories from secondary school and beyond. The clips in this first collection come from Mary Toomey, Maria Fortino, Joseph Caputi, and Antonina Cucciara. The memories they share span the 1950s to 1970s from different primary schools around Queens. 
Let's start with Mary Toomey. When I came to this country, it's, I mean, the education in Ireland at that time was certainly as good as here and probably a bit ahead of it. But they really didn't recognize that. So I was put into fourth grade. And I should have been put into like sixth. So I was very, very lucky. I met a wonderful nun who... Um, so I started school in January. And at that time there was 4A, 4B, 5A, 5B, not anymore. So I was put into... Um, 4B. And while I was in 4B, she doubled up with me and tutored me, and I was able to do 5A work. And then during the summer, I did 5B work with her. And then the next, and then in September, I was put into 6A. I was still a little behind, like. Um, a little, I was a little bit older when I went to high school. I would have been like, I would say the children that were my age would have been in, uh, I should have been six months further on, like. So I was only six months behind, but she was a wonderful she person. You up. Yes. What about the children in school? Were they accepting of you? Were there any other? Yes, uh, I never remember. Yes, I never remember a child. We were talking about this not too long ago. I never remember a child um, imitating my brogue or in any way, um, you know, bullying that way or you know, being not nice. I never remember that. So it evidently didn't happen. I don't remember how I went to school because for the first year I had to cross Queens Boulevard and you know I don't have much of a recollection of ever being with anybody doing it because what happened I suppose it was the stress really of bringing me here. I don't remember in the very beginning because my aunt worked. My aunt worked full time at that time. She didn't she get very sick after I came? She got very, very ill and got pleurisy. I suppose she must have walked me to school in the beginning. I don't have any recollection of that, though. Isn't that funny? Before the next few clips, where we'll hear stories of learning English in the 1960s, we'll share a bit of context. The New York City public school system is the largest school system in the country based on enrollment and among the most racially segregated. This creates wide-ranging disparities across the city in funding, instructor support, and access to resources. The next few stories remind us of the Bilingual Education Act of 1968. The act began to institute federal grants to fund bilingual and English language learning programs in public schools throughout the U.S. The circumstances of multilingual education in the U.S. continue to shift with the No Child Left Behind Act in 2001 to ongoing passage of laws in multiple states limiting bilingual education. For New York, English language learning programs remain in tension, with shrinking budgets, reported shortages in certified instructors, and school closures throughout the city. Throughout these stories, we want to consider the connections between English language learning, school support systems, and early education. Let's listen. 
Could you perhaps describe your experiences with school in the United States? Um, do, you, uh, do you recall the name of the school you went to and, and what it was like there? Uh, well, I don't remember the name of the schools because they changed it later, uh, but it was in College Point, and uh, they put me in the sixth grade, so it was the end of the school year. I went in March, and I only had a few months until then the summer vacation came. But um, going to school was very difficult because uh, it was just total immersion. You know, I went in there and uh, I sat in the classroom. The teacher announced that I guess I was a new student. And uh, the first thing she asked me, you know, she had my name obviously already. But uh, when I sat down, she said to me, oh, your name is now Mary Parente. And I said, no, because I'm Maria. And she says, but you're in the United States now. And Maria is Mary in the United States. And I remember resisting that I didn't like Mary. And uh, eventually, I guess she gave up because I always uh, was called Maria. Um, it, it was very difficult. No one spoke Italian in the classroom. Uh, there was a teacher's aide at the time in that particular classroom they put me in. And I don't know if they did it because I spoke Italian. But uh, this teacher took a liking to me, and uh, she made it a point to help me out. She really wanted to help me out. Maybe it was my drive also that she sensed in me that I really wanted to learn English so bad that uh, even at lunchtime she would just, like, you know, keep me back in the classroom where all the other kids went out on recess and ate lunch. I would stay with her, and, uh, you know, she would uh, spend time with me while I ate my lunch. We would read books so that I would learn the, uh, the English language. When they needed to have something totally translated, they called the uh, one of one of the other older kids who was in the school. Uh, his name was Frank, and uh, he was two years older than me. <laughs> and uh, they called him to translate. And I remember him coming, and uh, he spoke Italian, and he already spoke pretty well English. He had, he had been here already uh, uh, quite a few years. Anyway, he ended up uh, then later, we became good friends, actually, and uh, later ended up being my husband. <laughs> so I'll always remember where I met him. <laughs> did you feel that you assimilated pretty quickly, or did it take you a little bit? As far as in school-wise, took me a while because of the language barrier. I was picked on, like bullied on at one time. This kid that I still remember, uh, it was my first year, it was in the fourth grade, and uh, this kid bullied me, and I couldn't take it anymore. I grabbed the chair, closest to me, <laughs> and swung to me, and that was the last time this kid picked on me. Yeah, I still remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was it. But the language was, you know, it took time, but finally picked it up. Yeah. Did it take you a while to learn? Or? A little, yeah, it took a little while to learn. Because the parents, you know, everybody, we spoke Italian in the house. My parents didn't speak at all. I didn't even know they tried. My dad tried to go to school to learn the English, but it was hard for him because he had to work long nights, long days. Because he had to support the family. So he had very little time to go to school. That's why we had to watch TV. And that helped us a lot. And then I went to France too. It became close to France. They spoke English only. I had no choice. And that's how you learn fast. Tell me a little bit about the process of learning English. What that was like for okay. you or for your family. When I went to school in East New York, they put me in fifth grade. I was 12 years old. They put me in the fifth grade. 
but I had already started fifth grade in Italy. But being that I didn't know the English, they put me back, you know. So I started school, but work in the classroom. I was the only uh, redhead Italian girl there. <clears throat> so kind of, you know, in a strange place, strange people. It was very, very hard. And I was a, a little bit scared and I cried, being that I didn't understand a word of what they were saying. And uh, walking back and forth to school was also very scary because, you know, I didn't know the neighborhood and um, I didn't know anybody there. So, and it, it was very hard because my family couldn't help me or my, my children, my sisters were younger than me or my mother couldn't help me. So I, I was left on my own to learn and I, I caught up. But... Then when we moved, we, I went to another Catholic school in Ridgewood. There, the transition was a little better because there were other children, Italian, coming from, that, that just came to from Sicily. So I kind of stuck with them. We made like a group, but they also kept us in the back for some reason because uh, I don't know why. The reason is, I don't know why they kept us in the back. All, of, all the non-speaking English in the back. So I guess they had their own reason why they did that. And from there, then I, uh, we, we, uh, my parents couldn't afford the Catholic school anymore, uh, being that we just came and it was expensive, the, the clothing, the uniforms, uh, so we couldn't afford it. So we moved, um, they moved me to a public school on the same block, down the block, again there, uh, we found, I found more and more, more, uh, Italian-speaking uh, kids uh, coming from uh, the same town, different towns, from the same region, you know. Uh, so it was, I got more comfortable. And I stayed always with the same group. We, so we helped each other than the English. I remember that when I walked in, being the only Sicilian with the red hair, the teacher there, I always remember them, he had also red hair. So I kind of felt so comfortable. That he, and he helped me. He helped me. He helped me. He says, "Come, you know." He had a group of the Italian girls uh, after school teaching us, and we started picking up uh, the English from there. I started getting better and better, more comfortable, and uh, being with the other, you know, the same language, speaking with the same uh, girls, and uh, working together in groups. It made it better. We move now from primary school to memories from high school and college with stories from the 2000s and on. In the first set of clips, we'll hear Higma Abodunrin recount taking the SATs, a standardized test first issued in 1926 and now administered to high school students throughout the U.S. for college admissions. The SATs stand among many different standardized tests issued in city schools, which all remain under contention due to their strong tie to classifying student capabilities, as well as determining access to resources and school funding. Joining the New York City public school system as the largest school system in the country, the City University of New York, or CUNY, is the largest city university in the U.S. by enrollment. First, we'll hear Hikma Abudanrin talk about studying neuroscience at Queens College CUNY. After that, We'll listen to Muhammad Q. Amin share stories from both high school and another Queens-based CUNY school, LaGuardia Community College, 
Memories span from building community through high school student activism to responding to social isolation at school following the attacks of 9-11. While listening to these stories, we want to reflect on how family histories, political circumstances, and events shape school life. Let's hear more. So you were late for an SAT because of the bus? Yeah. Do you want to tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> so I woke up in the morning. I, I forgot what time I was supposed to wake up, but um, my mom was like, hey, don't you have a test to take? And I'm like, what? <laughs> it was 9 o'clock. I don't know. It was like an, an exactly one hour before I had to take the test. And it takes me about 40 minutes to get to the school. So... <laughs> I went, um, I got up and I rushed and I was just like, I had to get get up and get dressed. And I left my metro, I I think I, I I don't even think I brought money with me to take the bus on the Saturday, Saturday is Saturday? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think I had enough money to take the bus on the Saturday. So I had to ask the bus driver, the bus driver said no, so I got off the bus, so I waited for the next one. And then the next bus driver was, um, nice enough to let me on the bus and then by the time I got on main no 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 she, um Archer to take the Q44 the <laughs> um what's it called the I think there was construction going on that day so the Q44 had to take a different road and I was just waiting there for like 10 minutes like where's everyone else like there's no one there so I had to rush myself to um to like um, to walk to another stop, so I, I, either, I don't remember which way I took, I think I took Hillside, I think I walked all the way to Hillside, and I caught the Q20, because I was like, definitely in a rush, I really had to get to class, and I mean, not to class, to, SA, to the SATs, and I was just like, <laughs> panicking out of my mind, and so I ended up um, taking the Q20, and I got on the bus, <sighs> And my mind was just like racing, like I need to, like I was gonna wake up early and like you know review some vocabulary words. By the time I got to the to the school, it was like 20 minutes late, and I was like, "Can you please let me through?" Like, but they had, they they did end up letting me through because um, they kind of started late, a little bit late, so it was it was okay because I got in time to fill out the bubbles and stuff like that. Whew. It was such a hard time, but I don't think my score reflected what my reflected my struggle. So <laughs> I had to take it again. So um, after high school, you came straight to Queens College. Yes. Well, it it was um, a struggle between me and my mom. So I had the I had my mindset to go to Fredonia. Like I wanted to go to Fredonia because they had. Um, a program that I wanted to get into. It was it was something on the African Americans in um, in medicine. So they they had that program and they gave me a scholarship for it. And my mom was like, um, "What we wanted to the mom just didn't want me to go because of the." distance from our house and she didn't want me traveling back and forth and I don't think she was ready to buy me a car yet so it was it, it was up to her so I came here because they had neuroscience and they had the neuroscience neuroscience program and I, I thought I knew I would be able to find a way to get to get what I needed from here 
So it's possibly my best choice because it's so close as well. What made you choose neuroscience? Well, I was interested in the brain and how people behave and why they do it and how they do it. And like learning all of the mental diseases people have, I didn't, I wouldn't have believed it to be true. But when you see it in in, in any kind of brain MRI, it's like wow, and it's like really really interesting. And I wanted to learn more about it. So, but so far I haven't taken that kind of class yet. But I had to get the basics first in order to take that class. And what are you hoping to accomplish through the major? Well, I'm hoping to accomplish that I can know more. Not basically to just get into med school, but I want to be able to know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Because I want to take my knowledge and take it to places where people don't really have that, that kind of access. So it's really like more for me to know than for me to prove to everyone else because like if I have the information and all of the documents that I can take to anywhere else those people can might even be able to do better than I can so like for me to go to Nigeria like for example last um during in January I went to Nigeria in January and I brought my physics textbook with me because I because I knew I had to take physics and I thought I could study, but then in Nigeria, like high school kids, they are doing, they're doing way more than what we're learning here. So I'm just like thinking, like if I could take, if I could take this and use what they have over there, maybe there's something more that can grow. I went to uh, junior high school, fifty nine, mm -hmm. um, and then I graduated from that, and then I went to Far Rockaway High School, mm -hmm. um, and that's. I, that's where my passion for organizing and sort of being a leader and standing up and resisting any type of discrimination started. So what uh, was the first time you, what, 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 can you remember the first yeah, instance just, of activism? Just getting involved in being, I was actually elected uh, president of the Student Government Club, um, the Student Government Association, and through that type of leadership, I was able to sort of like mobilize the school for us to do things together as a, just as a young people, you mm -hmm. know, and being in high school, um, being of Caribbean background. At the time, Farakwe High School had a high um, rate of violence. There was, a, it was a, you know, metal detectors and all these yeah. things. And uh, the crime, you know, the crime rate in the school was a little bit high. Um, we didn't really have security guards. We had police officers mm -hmm. as our security guards. We had an art class that, uh, it's sort of where it all started. We all used to go to art. Um, I'm a huge fan of art. I used to paint when I was in high school. Um, and I say used to because I'm so sad that I have to say used to. <laughs> um, but we would, we would just talk about issues that, that were affecting us and what little things can we do in our capacity mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. What can we do to sort of like bring our school together? I went to LaGuardia. But you were still living with your parents. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. living with my parents. And um, the first day, I'm so excited. And I'm going to LaGuardia. And I am got there. And I'm like, yay, LaGuardia. Um, 
And I got to school. I'm excited. I'm in college. And then I'm, I kept thinking to myself, oh, my God, this is a three-hour commute every day. And I'm supposed to be here for two years? Okay. So I said to myself, I was like, I went. I spoke to the, the guidance counselor. And they had counselors at the mm-hmm. time that um, the first day you can talk to. And I was like, when can I transfer? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, um, I don't remember his name, but he looked at me and he was like, Sir, today's your first day. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I know. Um, but I just wanted to know, like, no, like, where I could transfer out and to, just to go to someplace uh, closer to home. And he was like, well, it's best for you to finish your first semester and see how that goes. Um, you'll need a, a certain GPA. And if you maintain a 3.5, um, the, the four-year schools will probably look at you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say give it a chance. Mm-hmm. Come back tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm going to come back tomorrow. And, uh, and tomorrow, the next day, I got up. I'm on the train. And I'm my regular routine. And it's like nine something. And I remember, I remember specifically looking at my, I had a really small Nokia like, you know, the small, when yeah. Nokia first came out, yeah. and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be late to class. And I'm like, this is not like me. And I looked out, and there was, like, all this smoke. And it was like, I was like, what's happening in New York City? Mm-hmm. So I got to, I got to class, oh and God. there's, like, all this chaos, and the teachers, like, people are crying, and I'm like, what's yeah. happening here? And... The first, um, it was maybe like 10 minutes after getting to my first class, um, the teacher came in and the teacher said, there's been an attack. Yeah. And we're all looking at each other like some people knew what was happening and there were all these um, assumptions, you know, like terrorism and, you know, and they were, you know, New York City were being attacked or like, you know, our freedom, our values are being attacked. And I'm sitting there, this is my second day of class, and that counselor said to come back, and I came back, and I don't even know, like, what's happening. So I remember the teacher said, um, I don't remember his name either, but he was like, go home, get home safe, Um, classes have been canceled. I got home eventually, I opened the door, my mom was like crying, and I'm like, I'm here. But I don't think I've ever, I was so happy to be home that day. Being Muslim, um, being an immigrant and, you know, having my name be Muhammad. I knew, I knew, like, life was never going to be the same. So um, I spent that entire first semester defending myself. Um, Was there a group you got involved in or by you know you not by yourself when you were doing that I or? was yeah it was very um it was it was maybe one or two muslim students in the class at the time and i i didn't really know how to sort of express myself at the time i didn't really know how to express myself and i isolated myself a lot mm-hmm. because i didn't want to talk about this and i didn't know who to trust and who were going to say um, you did this. Um, and I, I, it was it was very it was a very sort of emotional but also traumatizing first experience. And I remember my grades dropping. Um, I got like C's and B's and I'm like, this is not me. And you know, the trauma of 9/11 attack really affected my grades. Um, and I wasn't able to excel in my first semester the way I wanted to.
So there weren't any organizations that were created or any support systems that were created for to be honest, like you, it sounds I'm, like that's what you're saying. So yeah, like, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure they were. Know. I didn't know about them. Right. Okay. No, I didn't know yeah. about them. My best friend at the time, I she had she said I'm gonna take a break from school, and after I got my car, um, I told her, "We have you have to go to college. You're going to college. You're coming to LaGuardia with me." I was a year ahead of her, but we took we there were some similar classes. We every morning we went, we um we scheduled our classes in a way we would go together and we would come home mm-hmm. together. Um she lived in Far Rockaway, I lived in Far Rockaway, and I would pick her up and we would go to school. And for the first for that when she started, I think that was the first time I didn't feel alone mm-hmm. at LaGuardia. Um or I felt like I had someone there with me that I can rely on, or I can trust, um, or I could just have lunch with. I remember being able to like rely on my friend, her name is Maisha. Um, we're still friends today, she's still my best friend. And uh, her, yeah, she was, she, she was my support, my support system to college. Thank you for listening with us on the Queen's Memory Podcast. Visit our show notes blog at queensmemory.org. There you'll find full transcripts and written translations of this episode, and more to listen to from our archives. We've also added reading recommendations from Queen's Public Library's collections, as well as resources from local community organizations. And if you want your stories to join those you heard today and become part of our archives, head to queensmemory.org forward slash participate or to our show notes to find out more. I'd like to thank our producer, Adrian Lara, and our composer, Elias Raven. A warm thank you to Ro Garrido for providing fundamental collaboration and support, and to Richard Lee and Molly Schwartz for offering their guidance and wisdom. Thanks also to the Queen's Public Library and the Institute of Museum and Library Services for hosting and funding this podcast. Finally, thank you to all the interviewees, interviewers, interns, and volunteers for collecting and sharing the stories that make this podcast possible. If you're listening with others and want to reflect together, here are some guiding questions. How and where did you learn what you know now? Who has taught you something you consider important? Reflect with us for the next episode on work. We're thinking about relationships we've formed with people and places through the different types of work we do. Listen with us next time on the Queen's Memory Podcast.